Redemption Church family, I'd invite you as you're being seated to turn in your Bibles or click or scroll or whatever you need to do to get to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And uh, as you're doing that, I, uh, I want to ask you a question that I think perhaps everybody in the room can relate to. And it goes something like this, that have you ever asked the question of another person similar to this? How many times do I have to tell you? Now, men, let's just, can me and you just talk for a minute? Right? You hear this, right? Yeah, okay. Uh, boys and girls, you hear this? Teenagers, you hear this? We hear it because it's part of the human condition. Our inability to listen carefully, our inability to grasp concepts the first time, and, and it's not just a man problem, it's not just a kid problem, it's a human problem. And by the way, this is a good plug for our marriage conference that's coming up in a few weeks. If this is a problem for you, uh, come on to that on April 24th and 25th. We're going to have a great time there together as a church, uh, learning to enrich our marriages. But I wonder how often we get frustrated when somebody doesn't listen to what we say, when somebody doesn't hear what we say. It happened in my house several times this week. Uh, I'm sure it has happened in your house several times this week. Uh, young people, I'm sure it happens in your classroom. Your teachers get exasperated with you. Uh, brothers, I'm sure it happens with your sister when you tell her to stop, 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 stop annoying you. And she doesn't stop, stop, stop annoying you. How many times do I have to tell you? The Apostle Paul asked nearly the exact same question of the people in Corinth. You might recall the last couple of weeks, if you weren't here particularly last week because of spring break, I would really encourage you to go back and listen to Cody's message from last week. You might recall that we're in 1 Corinthians 15, which teaches us several things about the reality of the resurrection. Firstly, Paul would remind the Corinthians, he reminded us of the reality of Christ's resurrection from the dead. And he gave several proofs and he gave several um, pieces of evidence. And he said, look, if you don't even believe what I'm saying, there's 500 people that Jesus appeared to directly, and many of them are still alive. So have fun. Go talk to him. And then last week, we were reminded of, of the sureness of our resurrection eventually based on the past reality of Christ's resurrection. And then we come to today's text, and Paul says emphatically, how many times do I have to tell you, Corinthians? How many? And you know, if we're honest, I think he probably says that to us as well. So if you would, stand in honor of the reading of God's word. We're going to pick up in verse 35 of 1 Corinthians 15, verse 35. <clears throat> we're going to go through verse 49. Once again this morning, we have quite a bit of territory to cover. So... You listen intently as I read aloud. This is Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit speaking to the Corinthians and to us. And he says, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same. There is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another 
for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your trustworthy word. We thank you for your patience with us. We confess that you have to tell us things a multitude of times for us to get them and for us to understand them. Father, I pray this morning that we would hear from your word, that we would apply it to our lives, that we would think critically about decisions that we make based on what we see here. We thank you for even speaking to us. We recognize it as a privilege. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So, to begin with, I hope you notice there in verses 35 and 36, basically the paraphrase of how many times do I have to tell you. You see, Paul is a fairly intelligent uh, man, as you note. Uh, Peter even says in, in one of Peter's letters later in the New Testament that, that Paul speaks in ways that are difficult to understand. And so as we read this passage, and he's talking about heavenly bodies and earthly bodies and spiritual bodies and physical bodies, take comfort that even the Apostle Peter was a little bit perplexed occasionally by the way that Paul spoke. And so you and I are in good company. But really what's happening here is Paul is becoming undone with the Corinthians and their questioning of the reality of the resurrection. He's becoming undone with their inability or or lack of willingness to believe the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead, and because Jesus was raised from the dead, so would they be raised from the dead. And you note this because he anticipates a question. Remember, this is a letter. This is not a transcription of a debate. There's not an imaginary Corinthian sitting over in the corner of Paul's uh, writing room saying, oh yeah, but what about this, or what about that, or you didn't think about this, Paul. No, Paul knows the Corinthian church so well, he anticipates what they're going to ask. And so he says, someone might ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body did they come? The first thing you need to notice there is that the discussion and the argument and the, the um, pleading and the persuasion about the reality of the resurrection of Christ is, is over. 
Paul's finished with that. He's not going to go back to that. He's, he's going to make some allusions to that. And he's going to draw some parallels to some previous verses here in this chapter. But he's done arguing the point about the resurrection of Christ. And you know, I think most of us would probably agree with him. I have to imagine that the majority of you in this room are here because you at least accept as an intellectual fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. Now, whether or not you've got it settled in your heart and you actually believe it is an entirely different matter. But the reason that you're here is most likely because you believe that Jesus was someone significant, that he did the things that he said he was going to do, and that, yes, indeed, he was raised from the dead, even as unlikely as that sounds. And so for us, we're in a similar position to the people that Paul is now addressing in today's uh, verses when he says, okay, so we've established the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. We're not going to beat that dead horse anymore. Now I know you want to know how it's going to happen. Now I know that you want to know, oh yeah, Paul, well, okay, let's suppose that this is true. How in the world could God resuscitate a dead corpse? And, you know, even this morning, I'm reminded that this is a particularly sensitive topic for our church family. Just yesterday, uh, some of you were there. We we laid to rest a a longtime faithful member of Iron City Baptist Church, Miss Betty Cater. Stories were told about the legacy of faith that she left throughout the generations. She she had several great, great grandchildren, which just blows my mind. By all accounts, she was such a faithful woman. And so this topic is relevant for us. We've just placed one of our own in the ground. Can we be sure that one day she will be resurrected? Can you be sure when you die? Can I be sure when I die that we'll be resurrected? Paul intends to prove beyond the shadow of a doubt that you and I can be sure. But he's emphatic about it. What does he say in verse 36? Never the one for subtlety. Paul says, you foolish person. You see, that's where he gets exasperated. How many times do I have to tell you the reality of what's going on here? What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And he's going to go on and, uh, and give some analogies. But before we get to that, I wonder if there are times in our life that we ask similar questions um, that would lead the Apostle Paul to say to us, you foolish people. If you know your Old Testament, what Paul is saying there very likely is he's echoing the words of Psalm 14, which says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And by implication, what Paul is saying is the questions that you are asking, Corinthians, are betraying your lack of faith in God's ability to do what he says he's going to do. And if we're honest, if I'm honest, Daily, those kind of questions creep into my mind. Daily, I wonder, can God really? I mean, is that okay to admit as the preacher, like, doubts and difficulties? Can God really? Fill in the blank. And we know this is true because our hearts are drawn to things outside of the Scripture to validate what God supposedly will do. They're drawn to things like stories about near-death experiences and little children who go to heaven. So just buckle up. My email's in the bulletin if you need to send me hate mail. That's okay. 
and read this story to you from Baptist Press. It says, Lifeway Christian Resources has stopped selling all experimental experiential testimonies about heaven following consideration of a 2014 Southern Baptist Convention resolution on the sufficiency of Scripture regarding the afterlife. The resolution adopted by messengers of the SBC annual meeting in June warned Christians not to allow the numerous books and movies purporting to explain or describe the afterlife experience to become their source and basis for an understanding of the afterlife. The resolution affirmed the sufficiency of biblical revelation over subjective experiential explanations to guide one's understanding of the truth about heaven and hell. And I say to that long overdue. My intent this morning is not to pick on Todd Burpo or Don Piper or any of the others who have written these books. And my intent is not to pick on you if you've read them. My intent is to say that in your heart and in my heart, all of our hearts, we yearn and we long for experience over revealed truth. And if we're honest, we know that to be the case. The sales figures prove that to be the case. Millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars. And sadly, one of these books, one of the most popular, The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven by uh, folks, their last name is Malarkey. I promise you that is their last name. Um. It turns out that the, the husband in the, in the situation, him and his wife divorced, and he essentially fabricated most of what is in that book. And in recent days, uh, the son, who is now 16, and the, and the mother have come out and said, this is all a farce. This is all a farce. It was all to make money. And they're embroiled in lawsuits and nasty court situations. And it, that's what prompted this. It wasn't just some... some hateful man sitting in a corner by himself thinking, I'm going to go to the convention this year and I'm going to set them Baptists straight. And, uh, you know. No, it was prompted by the fact that this book was admitted forgery. Now, does that mean that the rest of them are? Absolutely not. Does that mean that the people who write these books don't sincerely believe what they experience? Absolutely not. They might very well. But does it mean that that's the source for where we get our understanding of what will happen to us when we die? You see, what I want to encourage us, I'm particularly passionate about this with our, with our young people. If our Christianity is based on experience, that Christianity cannot hold up against the world. It cannot. Because many of you, right, many of you went to youth camp, right, when you were in, you know. By the way, you should go ahead and sign up for this year's youth camp. Memorial Day week, it's going to be great. Going to Panama City Beach, and it's the cheapest way to go to the beach, so y'all come on. You went to youth camp, or you went to a revival, or you went to whatever, and you had what we kind of call a mountaintop experience, right? And you, you just thought, boy, I'm just going to go storm the gates of hell with a water pistol, and I'm moving to the jungle and telling people about Jesus. And But then real life happens to you, right? When you get back, bullies come back, relationships break down, whatever the case may be. Does that make that experience bad? No, absolutely not. God uses those mountaintop experiences to, to uh, secure our faith in many ways and to strengthen our faith and to, to bless our souls. But you know, practically speaking, 
that that can't sustain you the other 51 weeks of the year. You know this in a marriage, right? You know that the honeymoon (laughs) cannot sustain you for 50 years or 50 weeks. (laughs) It just can't. The honeymoon's great, and the vacations are great, and the retreats are great, and the conferences are great. But if you rely on nothing but experience to validate the truth of the commitment that you've made to Christ and the truth that he reveals in Scripture, you and I are setting ourselves up for disappointment every time. And so my admonition to you, my careful pastoral counsel to you, is to allow the Scriptures to be sufficient for your understanding of what will happen to you in the life to come. Do you think God hates you so much he would withhold good things from you? Do you think that God would not tell you what he wants you to know? What he needs you to know? Well, the answer is, of course, he would tell you. And that's what we're going to look and examine here. So so we'll try to put out of our mind books that we might have read, movies that we might have seen, thoughts that we might have thought, dreams that we might have had, and let's try to zero in here on what God says about what will happen to his children when they die. And he gives us some pretty helpful analogies to do that. He says this, picking back up in the text, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. I recognize perhaps you might not be able to see this, but uh, this is a stalk of wheat. And uh, you might have seen these uh, maybe somewhere in a field if you've ever been to the Midwest or uh, someplace where they grow wheat. And it's actually quite stunning in, in um, you know, September, October. If you're a farmer, please don't correct me if I just butchered the harvest time wrong. But um, you see this and, and amber waves of grain, right, from the, from the old um, song. They're beautiful and they're useful. And, and we get all kinds of sustenance from them and, um, and, and all kinds of benefit. But we know that this tiny, tiny, tiny little kernel right here, this little, this little bitty seed has to, has to physically die. Right? Like it actually has to, to quit living in the truest sense. It, it has to fall off of the plant. It, it has to, to be broken in a sense and buried in a sense. So you, you see what Paul is doing here. Buried, broken, died. It's go in the ground. So if you were just to come upon this, having no prior knowledge of what a wheat stalk looks like, or if you were to come across an acorn in the woods, having no prior knowledge of what an oak tree looked like, or tomato seed, or fill in the blank, whatever you'd like, could you possibly imagine that this would turn into this? Could you possibly imagine that this would be greater than this. I couldn't if I'd had no prior knowledge of this. What Paul is saying is that our bodies are going to be the same way. In a sense, our bodies are like this grain of seed, are like this very tiny shell, in a sense. They will be transformed, as we're going to see later in our text. But the question must be asked, Does that mean this is insignificant? Does that mean that this is inconsequential? 
Does that mean that this doesn't have honor and value and dignity and glory? No. It just means that the honor and dignity and value and glory of this will be infinitely surpassed by the honor and value and dignity and glory of this. So that's the picture that Paul wants us to have in our minds it's a picture that the people of his day could relate to. It's a picture that the people that we can relate to as well, because we all know, in, in, a, in a very basic sense, how agriculture works. Let's pick up in verse 38. He says, But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there's one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. So there's an, another analogy for you. I thought about bringing my dog here and having him here, but that would have been a total disaster. Um, <laughs> because he is hyper around people. Uh, But you know quite well that a dog's flesh is different than your flesh. A dog's body is different than your body. This even sounds kind of silly to say, because you think, well, you know, duh, like how can you not notice that? But Paul is clearly, clearly trying to help the Corinthians understand with very basic analogies and very basic metaphors that there is some truth to the things that he is saying. And so, boys and girls, if you have a pet fish at your house, you know whether you're five years old or 50 years old, you know that that fish, now it has... Um, flesh on it and it's got a body but you know good and well it is not the same kind of body that you have we know this by experience and by observation and so we know that the seed doesn't quite look the same as the finished product and we know that our flesh and our bodies look different than animals and he's going to go one step further and give us one more analogy there are heavenly bodies verse 40 and earthly bodies But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory for the sun, another glory for the moon, another glory for the stars. For star differs from star in glory. So follow what's happening. Seed metaphor analogy, uh, animal flesh analogy, and now, okay, if you need one more, consider how the sun is different than the moon. Consider how the stars differ from one another in brightness, in intensity, in color. Consider these things. And when you consider them, consider that your present earthly body is somewhat of a shadow of what your glorified body will be. Keep that in mind. He moves on, verse 42, to this. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. So he's saying, just like I've told you here, so it will be with the resurrection of the dead. Then he goes on to a new list of of, of metaphors for us. What is sown is perishable, but what is raised is imperishable. And this is where even every good metaphor breaks down because this is perishable as well. But now we're moving into some spiritual realities here. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Now let's just clear up a couple of things here really quickly. In verse 43, it says, it is sown in dishonor. And then he says, it is sown in weakness. Now, let me be clear here. Paul is not saying that the body, the physical body that you and I have right now, are dishonorable. Remember, he's trying to fight against that notion. That's what the entire chapter of 1 Corinthians 15 is about. Fighting against the notion that the body is somehow intrinsically bad, that matter, that physical matter, that flesh and bones are somehow physically bad. And I would say to you, if you believe that, if the Corinthians believe that, then why did the Son of God take on human flesh upon himself? That would have been a dreadful heresy. 
but he did. And so the human body is not to be desecrated. It's not to be dishonored. But it is weak. And it is, in a sense, coming into the world in a position of weakness. Coming into the world with sin built into it. Coming into the world with a lack of of trust towards God. Coming into the world prone to disease and prone to starvation and prone to all kinds of calamities that, that you and I see on a daily basis. So in that sense, yeah, it's weak. And yeah, there's some dishonor to it because of how sin has affected the human race. But make no mistake, it is important to God. Our bodies are important to God. If I may take a brief aside to give you what I hope will be some instructive pastoral counseling. I have perhaps already stepped too far in the shaming of the heaven books. But might as well just swing for the fences, I guess. I have a conviction that I would like to share with you regarding the body. And I say conviction very carefully. Because what I'm not saying to you in just a moment is is that I can prove this definitively from the scripture. I'm not saying to you that if you've participated in this activity or you're planning to do it, that you're somehow in sin. But I hope to model for you in this moment that you can speak your conviction compassionately, straightforwardly. And if we disagree, we can still be friends, hopefully. So here it goes. God cares about your body. God cares about what happens to your body in life and in death. And so therefore, I would urge you, brothers and sisters, and just let me just give a caveat. There is disagreement about this issue even amongst my own extended family. Okay? So just understand, I walked through this before. I would urge you as you are making decisions and preparations for what will happen to you when you depart from this earth that you consider this text very carefully. Particularly around the issue of cremation. No Christian before about 70 years ago would have ever, ever contemplated the idea of intentionally burning their body. No Christian. The religions of the world that burn bodies are pagans. They believe that the body must be burned to release the soul to wherever the soul goes. And furthermore, Christian burial is an important symbol of the hope of the resurrection that you and I await on the last day. Friends, symbols are not unimportant, but somehow or another, in our modern consciousness, we have decided that they are unimportant. And cremation is a glaring example of that. We think symbols matter because we wear them every day. We think symbols matter because in a few moments we're going to baptize a young man for committing his life to Christ. 
Now, that's an ordinance that we're commanded to do, so don't misunderstand me. Burial is not an ordinance that the church is commanded to do. But it's a symbol nonetheless. The Lord's Supper is a symbol of the broken body of Christ and the shed blood for you and I. So I would urge you with every, every ounce of humility that I can muster to just think critically about these decisions. Think critically about what that means. Now, obviously, our God is big enough to resuscitate ashes. Thankfully for, for the countless men and women who have been lost at sea or the victims of 9-11 or, or this unbelievable plane crash of the last few days where the unthinkable happened and a pilot drove a plane into the ground and ob- obliterated every single human being on board. But God is not unable to bring ashes back from the dead. But symbolism is important. The symbolism of burial is important. And so consider it, would you? Would you consider that as an implication from what we see in this text? Consider that when you're making those decisions. And again, my email is in the bulletin. So if you need to tell me what you think, it's okay. You can't. Let's get back into the text. Enough of what I think. Let's get back here. Let's look at verse 45. This is what I really want to zero in on here for the remainder of our time. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. If you're a student of the scriptures, you will know that Paul really, really, really likes to draw analogy and distinction between the first Adam and the last Adam. Most famously in Romans chapter 5, when he tells us that sin came into the world through the first Adam, that because of the first Adam's disobedience, all people were made disobedient. But praise God, because of the last Adam, that being Christ, eternal life and forgiveness of sin is made available to all men and women. And so here he's picking back up on that analogy of of us being made in the image of the first Adam, a natural man from the earth, made of dust. And his point is that you and I are just like the first Adam. Our bodies are prone to decay. Our bodies are prone to failings. Our our bodies are, in a sense, returned to the earth when we die. And so in that way, we are just like Adam. We have inherited those physical characteristics from him. But notice the distinction that he makes. The last Adam, verse 45, became a life-giving spirit. The first man from the earth, man of dust. The second man is from heaven. What we need to see there is that just as Adam passed on the physical limitations of himself, Christ passes on the eternal life-giving spirit of God to those who profess faith in him. Paul would say elsewhere, right, that the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead lived in him and lived in those of us who proclaim Christ as our Savior. So he's not in this weird thing saying, Jesus became a spirit. It's not what's going on here. He's saying that Jesus, like he said earlier in the text, in verses around 21, 22, is that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. That Jesus is the proof 
Jesus is the physical proof of the spiritual reality of resurrection. I'll say that again. Jesus is the physical proof of the spiritual reality of the resurrection. And that should bring us great, great comfort. He goes on to say that those, in verse 48, as the man was of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Again, it's helpful for us not to get confused that Jesus was somehow created in heaven and then he was sent to earth. No, Jesus is pre-existent, co-eternal with the Father. He is not a created being. I mentioned in my prayer time earlier for our, that we should pray for our Mormon friends. Listen, they believe that Jesus was a created being. We're not picking on them. We're not, we're not just saying, well, they're not Baptists, so they're just, they just don't get it. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is they don't believe in Jesus. You can call him Jesus. He's not Jesus. So he wasn't created. He wasn't sent from heaven in the sense that he was a created being. He was put down here. What Paul is saying is that in the resurrection, Christ was returned to us from heaven. That Christ said, on the cross, into your hands I commit my spirit. That he was in the grave. That God raised him from the dead. And then he sent him back to earth. And friends, have you ever considered that that is the model for what will happen to you and I if we trust in Christ and we seek forgiveness of sin through him? There is lots and lots of mystery surrounding the issue of death. Lots and lots of mystery surrounding the issue of where we go and what happens to us as evidenced by the wildly popular success of these experience-driven books. But this is what we do know. We will be with the Lord immediately upon our death. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We know secondly that we will not have our glorified body until the resurrection, the final resurrection. And that leaves a lot of us curious. How can I be with God if I don't have a body? I don't know. <laughs> the scripture doesn't tell us. And incidentally, the only man in the New Testament who went to heaven and came back was Paul. And you know what he said about it? Nothing. <laughs> he said, I am not permitted to talk about what I saw. Which is a whole other reason you should be suspicious of these books. So we just don't know, friends. But we need to lean on what we do know. And what we do know is that we will be in the presence of Lord, the Lord immediately upon our departure from this physical body. And that one day, whether it's tomorrow or a billion years from now, when Jesus returns, you and I will have a more glorious body than we could ever imagine. But what we need to see here is there is going to be a great deal of continuity between the body that you have right now and the body that you will have on that day. But this is what I can promise you it will not be like. It will not hurt. It will not age. Don't ask me what age you'll be in heaven. I have no idea. You might be 20 or 50 or something. I don't know. It will not get sick. It will not experience sadness. It will be perfect. But you know what? 
It's going to look a lot what, like what it looks like now. And you know why we know that? We know that from one particular text that I will just read to us by way of illustration. It's in Luke chapter 24, verse 36 and following. As they were talking about these things, the, the disciples, Jesus himself stood among them, and he said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do, you, why do doubts rise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet? It's I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. So there's a few clues, friends. The one who has gone before us, Christ Jesus, who in his resurrection secured you, your and I's resurrection from the dead, looks a whole lot like he did when he was here on earth. Except for the hands and the feet and the side. Do you know why? To eternally remind you and eternally remind me what it costs to secure our salvation. What it costs so that you and I could have a resurrected body. What it costs so that you and I could experience fellowship with God forever. And this I can promise you, friends, that all the trivial questions that we have about the nature of our bodies, beyond what the scriptures tell us, will pale in comparison when, when the writer of Revelation tells us, we shall see his face. And then I can promise you, it won't matter what you and I look like. As we close, let's look at the last verse here, verse 49. Just... As we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. You know, some commentators think, as I was studying this week, that the we shall should say let us. And so there's a present reality to this whole resurrection business. There's a present reality to what will happen in the future. We call that the already not yet. That we live in the already of the reality of the resurrection, but we haven't yet fully experienced the benefits. And so really what I believe Paul is saying here is that all of us have borne the image of the man of dust. All of us. Adam. Let us also bear the image of the man of heaven. So perhaps it would be helpful for us to leave behind speculation, to leave behind uncertainty, and take what we know to be true about Jesus and bear that image. Live like him now. And I think it's instructive that he uses the word we and us. It's very intentional. He's saying we, us, who have believed in Christ. 
why in the world would God give you or me a resurrected, glorified body if we do not believe in the one who has been resurrected and glorified? That's the opportunity that you have this week to either for the first time surrender to Christ or to fan the flame of your dormant faith as we look to the cross and as we look to the resurrection. Would you pray with me? Father, we are mindful that our understanding is finite. We are mindful that we are prone to wild imaginations. That we are prone to chase after speculation and what ifs. Father, I would ask that you grant us faith to take you at your word. That you grant us faith to trust that it is sufficient. To, to trust that, that you love us enough to tell us what we need to know. That you care for us enough to show us the way. Father, comfort our hearts in light of death. C comfort the heart of of Miss Betty Cater and, and her children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, even who just this weekend have, have laid her in the ground with the sure promise that her resurrection is coming. Father, help us to be equally sure 